Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church Podcast. With multiple campuses existing within Southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. It's a familiar voice, right, uh, to all of us hearing uh, the gospel, this idea of Jesus being resurrected from the dead. It's Billy Graham, in case you are uh, not, uh, didn't, was, was, weren't aware. Um, I thought about it, it'd actually be easier just to play a Billy Graham video for all of us. That saved me a lot of uh, trouble and perhaps a lot of questions. Um, I want to wish you guys a happy Easter. I, one of the traditional greetings uh, at Easter Sunday is the pastor stands up and he says, he is risen. The congregation responds, he is risen indeed. A lot of you know this. Uh, but obviously times are changing. As this morning I was walking, I said, hey, he is risen. People said, man, he is. So I thought we might try that one, right? So I'm going to say, he is risen. You say, man, he is, right? It's a good thing. So uh, we're celebrating Easter Sunday. And Easter Sunday, Easter is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's an event. It's a thing that happened in human history. This isn't like fairy tale. This is not presented as fairy tale. It's an event. It's something that you and I have to wrestle with. Um, It's presented uh, to us as good news. That's what most of us have heard. The gospel, Billy Graham just said that this is the best news that the human heart has ever heard. This is the best news that human beings have ever heard. Good news about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do is I want to sort of ask you, what's good about it? What's good about it to you? What do you believe about it? What do you think about it? And so you're going to have to really put your, you, you thought we were coming today to get like a little Jesus, a little Easter bunny, we'd all be good. I'm, I want you to think, and I want you to think hard. I want you to wrestle, and I want you to wrestle hard. Because there's actually a ton at stake. There are people who see God in ways in which he has not revealed himself. And they think things about God in which he has not revealed himself that are keeping them from understanding and knowing who he is. Most of us have heard that the gospel is good news, but it is almost always presented to us as anything but. I remember driving into Wilmington years and years ago. There was this sign on I-40 before you came into Wilmington. It had a big finger pointing down from the sky and it said, repent, right? You ever seen this? That sounded like goodness, like welcome to Wilmington. We always think about this. You have this idea of, of, of repentance as being this thing that if you don't, right, it's or else. It's like this threat that's been given to us. And repentance in the gospel is actually a beautiful thing. And I suppose it depends on what you think you're repenting to. Imagine driving on the road and seeing this sign um, on the road. Take a look. There he is, Jesus resurrected from the dead. He loved you on the cross. He came to the other day and says, you for me or are you against me? Because if you're against me, boom, I'm bringing the hammer down. There's hell to pay, right? How good news does that sound? I'm thinking, can you not do any better than that? How about this one? Avoid hell, repent. I'm like, is this really the best we can do with something that really is good? If it's good news, surely we can do better with this. Have you ever, have you ever thought that? Am I the only one? Maybe it's because I've grown up in this too long. But I remember this, and I, want, and I want for us to think about some things, because I've been reading the Scriptures for a long time. I've been, I've been trying to understand who God is and how God is. The more and more I read and the more and more I study, the more I allow um, the Scriptures to read me, the God's Spirit to speak to me, just saying, God, can you show me more and more of who you are? For a long time, I often read the Bible, trying to find principles to apply to my life that would make me a better Christian, a better moral person. 
And then for the last 10, 12, 15, maybe 20 years, or I don't remember where it shifted, but to really start to read the scriptures in order to see God and find his heart for me and for the world around me, for us, for who he is and how he is, to really sort of embrace him, to sort of awaken something in me, to worship him, to live in this idea of repentance. So the repentance isn't a threat. A lot of us, right, we see repentance and we think that repentance is simply a threat of bad news. Repent or else, right? Repent or there's hell to pay. Repentance is a threat of bad news. But I want us to consider something a little bit differently, that perhaps repentance is actually our response, your response, my response to actual good news, to beautiful news, incredible news. So I want us to paint a little bit different picture of this this morning. And like I said, you're gonna have to probably put your thinking caps on and some of you weren't um, prepared for that today and that is okay. But I'm gonna ask you to make a couple of assessments about yourself and put yourself in some categories and decide where you are and what you think and what you believe because it does matter. It matters not only for in terms of what you're gonna do with all of eternity. I believe eternity is real. It, it not only matters for that, but it also matters what you're going to do this week and this month and how you're gonna treat the people around you and how you're gonna respond to people who disagree with you and the things you're gonna believe about all the things that you're gonna be confronted with. All this matters and how we see God and view God and what he thinks. And some of you, you're, you're sort of safely in this category and you're like, yeah, I'm a religious person. And so that's your category. You're like, I'm in church. I believe in God. I must be a religious person, right? You got this. And others of you, you're like, I'm only here because my mom said, will you please go to church with me on Easter Sunday? I'm just kidding. But you know, that's what happens. I'm, I'm really glad you're here. I hope you'll think today with me. Um, or irreligious. And so you're like, I don't, I'm in church, but I don't really know. I don't know what about all this stuff. So I'm irreligious. And so we have these kind of categories that we began to develop. People ask me all the time, I say, Mike, and I'm not religious. I'm like, oh, me neither. They're like, whoa. And I want to tell you why, because there's something else at stake. When Jesus began to talk about, right, his gospel, so years and years ago, uh, probably in 2006 or seven, uh, no, it was actually 2005, uh, someone came out of the church, churches of a few years old, five or six years old, Port City was. And I was, I'd been preaching and teaching and talking and all the things that I do there. And, and I grew up in it, so I'm very familiar with the gospel. I'm very familiar with the Romans road. If you grew up in the church, right? All of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. I confess with your mouth. You know, all these things, I'm familiar. I've learned how to present the gospel with John 3, 16, with Romans 6, 23. I've learned how to do versus done. I've got all kinds of ways to present the gospel in very clear ways and to call people to a decision. I know how to do it. I can, you know, ask people the two questions. If you were to die today, where would you spend eternity? If you were sent before God, I've, I've known all these things. It's just great conversation when you knock on someone's door and just, hey, if you were to die, where do you think you'd go? It's like, oh, this is nice. My name is John, right? And so, and, and I'm not belittling it. I'm just saying there's something else. And someone asked me, I said, Mike, why don't you just present the gospel to people very simply at the end of a service and ask people to respond so they don't go to hell when they die? Well, that's a good question. That's a fair question. And so I'll try to answer it kind of the best I can. And then I had this crisis. Because like, I can tell you how to check a box and I can convince you of some facts about things, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure that this is the full picture. And this was a terrifying, it's, it's terrifying for me to admit in front of you guys, right? This was my crisis. I was a pastor of a church and wrestling with the gospel. But I think you ought to. I think a lot of us have not wrestled with the gospel enough and we end up believing things or thinking things that are just really, really diminishing views of God and therein diminishing views of the good news 
that is his gospel. So what I began to do is I just picked up my Bible and I began to read, how did Jesus present his message? It's a novel idea I know. Jesus did not use the Roman road. It wasn't written when Jesus was teaching. So I began to just read through John, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I said, how did Jesus present his message? And what I began to notice was that most of the gospel presentations I heard had to do with where you're going to spend eternity, in heaven or in hell. And the thing that Jesus was obsessed with, the way he presented his message was always about his kingdom. Always. Always. In fact, maybe the best way to sum it up, and it's found in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, after he began his public ministry, Jesus began and says that from that time on, Jesus went around the region preaching this message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's at hand, some of your versions say. It's available. It's in front of you. It's right here and it's available to you right now. And I'm asking you to repent, not repent or else, not turn or burn, but repent because something has been made available to you and this is good news. So I began to realize like, what is, what is the definition of the gospel? I just started going through this. What's the definition of the gospel? And the reason this is so important is because for a lot of us, we think of religion and we think of irreligion. We think of this, I think, uh, especially in our culture, this is all shifted. It literally just means which religious system are you? Are you Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, whatever it means? But I think it means something starkly more dangerous or more um, distracting than what we know. Religion, in essence, I'm going I'm to make a big, giant generalization and summary. But religion is ordered by primarily a legal view of the world. It is, here's what you should do. If you don't do this, boom, there's hell to pay, right? That, that's how we think of it. it, it there's going to be punishment. There's going to be problems. And we primarily see it as legal. And then what truth becomes, truth becomes sort of the principles that uphold this are what we would see as our moral code, the things that you should do. And if you do them, everything will be the way it's supposed to be. And so some of you have tried this and you're like, okay, I'm not really into that. So you live over here on this side and, and the irreligious side, I would sort of summarize or generalize as basically our, our way of operating isn't sort of legal framework of things that are right and things that are wrong, but we would say it's more like situational ethics. Like it depends on what is happening, uh, depending on what I believe or what I think. That's fluid. Can you read that fluid? It's situa situational ethics. And you've probably heard this. And what truth becomes, truth becomes in this system, it becomes relative. And you hear people using uh, the term, uh, I'm just going to speak my truth. And you've all heard this. I'm just going to speak my truth. I'm going to take my experience and what has happened to me, and I'm going to speak that. And that's going to have to be true because that's what matters to me in this moment and this time. There's, there's a million problems with that. We're gonna, we can do a whole series on that coming up. But these are two systems. And what I want you to be really careful because what a lot of you hear instinctively because you grew up in the church is you think these are the religious right conservative people and these are the irreligious wrong left people. And what I want to tell you is there are right wing and left wing. There are liberals and Republic, uh, uh, Democrats and Republicans and conservatives on this side of the aisle. What we have in our culture it is, a, it is a legal sort of mode where there are principles that are to be applied. And if you don't apply those principles, there's going to be you know, consequences for that. And the moral code, the truth is the moral code, the values that we establish as priority. 
And this is true on both sides of the aisle. In fact, what we have now more than anything else in our country is a religion of politics. If you believe this, this, and this, you're in. If you believe this, this, and this, you're out. And it depends on which side. And this is how both sides operate. There are conservatives and liberals and Democrats and Republicans and all this, on this side as well. This is why what I want us to see and what Jesus did, what God did is so radically different in this. And the way you can tell, the rally cry for the religious people is we got a world to save, right? We got a world to save. And if you, you've heard, I've, I've seen this tweeted out. I've seen it in all our efforts. Like we, got, we got a world to save. We got a country to save. We got, we, got to, we got to save the world. And what you believe is that if everybody just did the things that you believe are right, it doesn't matter which moral value you lift up. It doesn't matter which side of the aisle it's on. What you believe is that if this happened, then the world would be made right. And on this side, the rallying cry is, you know what? Can't we just live and let live. Now you start to see where the categories begin to fall. And what God came to do is something fundamentally other, holy. It is different, and this is what the gospel is. So years ago, I tried to just start uh, to stop and think about what do I mean by the gospel? What do I believe about the gospel? And I would ask you the same question. What do you mean by the gospel? What do you believe about the gospel? What do you think about the gospel? Do you have a definition? This was back in the days when Twitter was cool. And so Twitter is a, a 140 characters. So I worked really hard to come up with a definition of the gospel for my own personal use that was 140 characters. Worked really hard to sum it up, what it's the whole thing about. And then Twitter moved it to 100 and, uh, 240 characters. So I added a few letters to it because it made it make more sense. So it took me a long time, but here's my definition. This is what I mean when I say the gospel. The gospel literally means good news. It's all it means, good news. And so when I sat down, so you have to start, if you're going to define the gospel, you have to start with that line. The gospel is good news about, or the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. It's the good news, the announcement, the message. It's not advice. It's not a principle, it's the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is really important. His birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. All four of those components matter. And then what you read when you hear how Jesus presents the gospel, he says there are two things that he came to do. Number one is to save sinners, which all of us have probably heard. And number two, to establish his kingdom. Establish his kingdom. He came to save sinners and establish his kingdom. And this means something. Because if you don't consider yourself a sinner in need of salvation, you don't need Jesus and therefore you don't get him. It's that simple. He came to save sinners. He came to rescue those who've been separated from the way in which they have been created and made for God and to redeem them, to restore them, to save them and to establish a rule and a reign under which we live. This is really important. When I begin to think about the kingdom and you think about this kingdom that we talk about, this kingdom is reconciled only by forgiveness. And some of you are going to hear that and you're going to nod your head. But what you're going to do is you're going to go out and you're going to make decisions about all kinds of other things and you're going to demand that things be made right according to some system that you've created. That is not the gospel. It is not the gospel. Forgiveness is the only way that the kingdom is reconciled. 
And so I'm just going to say it. I hope that it sticks in your brain. I hope that you'll write it down. I hope you'll consider that at some point in time. The kingdom is reconciled by forgiveness. There is no other way. You have to be forgiven and you have to learn how to live in forgiveness and you have to learn how to live as one who is forgiven in order to learn how to live in the kingdom. I can't, I could go, I got another service tonight at five, so I have to stop right there or we'll be here till then. And none of you would like that. The second thing is this kingdom is ruled by love. And these are two radical thoughts from the way I've always thought and grown up. Now, a few months ago, uh, one of our pastors, Dennis, we were having a deep theological conversation out in the hall. A deep theological conversation out in the hall. And so, um, which is what we had our masks on. So we were out there in the hall. There's about three or four of us talking and we were um, talking about all kinds of things. So you're using like big theological words with a mask on. So you can imagine how things get lost in translation. I mean, things get lost in translation when you're speaking like clearly. And then you put a mask on and it's like, you can't understand anything. So we're like having this conversation. And so at the end of the conversation, we're talking about all these things. And Dennis, one of our pastors here, he said, Mike, he said, I just resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, for those of you who know, this is actually a verse uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul is writing to his Corinthian church, which is filled, by the way, with a bunch of irreligious people who do all kinds of crazy things. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And so Paul writes this, and this is what he says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. He says, For I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, and him crucified. Two things, Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Dennis was quoting this verse. Mike, I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he goes home that night and he's at the uh, dinner. And I said, I said to him, I said, well, Dennis, I said, that is so simple and complex. Remember we had masks on. So he goes home and he's doing the dishes and he looks like something's bothering him. So his wife knows, he says, Dennis, what's wrong? It looks like something's bothering you. His wife says, Michelle, what's bothering you? He's like, man, I don't know, man. Something Mike said really bothered me. She says, oh, what was he? So we're having this conversation today and he recounted our conversation and said, I said, I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Mike said, it's so sinful and complex. (laughs) He said, I can't figure out what's sinful about it. He's like, Jesus Christ, what's sinful about this? And she's like, well, maybe I ought to talk to him. And he's like, yeah, I think I need to. So she walks back out and she comes back and she goes, <clears throat> do, do you think he meant simple and complex? He's like, oh yeah, right? And so I've been thinking about this ever since. Because there's a lot of us, have you ever thought about what the gospel is? It's not Easter bunnies, it's not pastels, it's not flowers, it's blood. It's guts. It's violence. Does that ever bother anybody? Are you ever bothered by it? When you read it, you're like, wow, what is God doing? So we just grow up. Oh, how's, that, how's that good news? That God killed Jesus. He killed his son to forgive you. Oh, repent. Like, I can see how you start to get this message like repent or else. Because if, if you don't want that done to you, you better talk to me. It's very simple on one hand. Jesus Christ him, and, and Him crucified. This message, I've been thinking about this for the last 
four or five weeks talking about the cross, understanding the cross. And it's actually stunning to consider what is really going on and what is really available to us. For most of us, we have grown up. And what you have heard is in order to go to heaven, you have to be a Christian. In order to be a Christian, you have to receive Jesus. So I receive Jesus, so I become a Christian, so I can go to heaven. And you're basically like this, your calculating logical mind just simply says, I don't wanna burn forever, so I'll just take door number two. When I was in high school, I grew up in the 80s. Y'all know this, my love for the 80s. It is the, I know you're jealous that you didn't grow up in the 80s. I I, I completely understand. Everybody couldn't. Yes, some of you know. And so I turned 16 in 1986. And in 1986, the car that I drove was an 86 Vet. You're all jealous. It was not a Corvette, it was a Chevette. And those are two very different cars. A Chevette is like a bad Prius that wasn't even electric. I mean, it's that. If you drive a Prius, I apologize, but let's be honest. It's just not, it's just not something you wanna be riding around in. And a lot of us have approached the gospel as the choice between a Corvette and a Chevette. And it's a no-brainer. Do you wanna go to heaven or do you wanna go to hell? It's a no-brainer. Why would anybody choose anything else? That's because you have this version of the gospel that's repent or else. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I believe there are eternal consequences and uh, significance to what we are talking about here. I just think it's far different than what most of us have thought. And there's something really important about this because what happens is we sort of approach this as though we're like taking a test in the 11th grade where you just tell me what I need to know on the test. I'll learn that and then I'll, I'll forget it all because I won't ever use it anyway. So tell me what the gospel is. I'll get it in my head. I'll check the box on the test. I won't ever really need it again anyway unless he came to save sinners and to put you into a rule and reign under which you will learn to live freely here and now unless it's here and now available to you. Then it's a much different story. And so this is what I want for us to understand. There are two observations. I'm gonna write these down. The two things are really simple. Is that it, the first one is it is Jesus Christ. I resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ. And most of us go, okay, big whoop. You know that Christ is not Jesus' last name. Most of us just think, oh, it's Jesus Christ. It's like Mike Ashcraft. It's like his surname. Jesus Christ. Christ is his title. Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One. In Hebrew culture, what you would have understood without question is that when they said Jesus the Anointed One, this would have been a king. This would have been the establishment of a king, the establishment of a rival throne. And in first century Rome, first century Palestine, under the Roman rule, there was no rival for Caesar. Why? Because every rival for Caesar got killed. So when he says, I resolve to know Jesus Christ, he is saying something extremely important. He is saying there's an authority here. There is an allegiance here. There is an identity here. There is a rule and a reign here. I profess to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Why not him resurrected? Why not his teaching? Why not his moral superiority? Why not a lot of things? Just those two. Jesus the King and him crucified. What the cross is, is the cross is the final and full demonstration of God's love for you. And I want you to hear this because what a lot of us think is, yes, the cross is God's love, but he would love me if he gave me a better job or a better spouse or better kids 
or his love would be demonstrated if I had more money or this problem was solved or this person didn't get sick or this happened. A lot of us have these, God, God, if you love me, you would. And the cross is the full and final demonstration of God's love for you. And this is what I want in the final few minutes we have remaining together to help you see this in a powerful, powerful way. As I've been thinking about the cross, as I've been thinking about the cross for the last six or seven weeks, and I've never really stopped and just focused on it like I have in this season. And our Holy Week devotions and all the things we've done have just helped me kind of think about it and think about it and think about it. So God, what is at stake here? When, when you said there are two things, that, when Paul says, I just profess nothing else, I'm Jesus Christ and him crucified. What is it about this that I can gather? <clears throat> and then I saw this, um, this quote, it kind of stopped me in my tracks. Because for the longest time, it felt like death was like the defeat and the resurrection was the victory, right? Death was when everything went wrong and the resurrection was the redemption, of the righting of everything that went wrong. Death was the enemy that took Jesus down and the resurrection was when God came out and boom, he kicked death in the teeth. I read this quote and it says this, that the crucifixion is not a defeat overturned by the resurrection. But rather, the crucifixion is a victory revealed. The, the crucifixion is a victory revealed by the resurrection. Now, don't nod your head and go, oh, I want you to look at it. Most of us inadvertently, subtly believe that the cross, the crucifixion, even though we've sang songs about it, we inadvertently, we believe that the cross was the defeat and the resurrection was the conquest. And what this gives us permission to do is when things come against God, to kick them in the teeth the way Jesus kicked death in the teeth. And it's a fundamentally different thing to think about. Think about this. When did Jesus become king? When did, when did he become king? When was he established king? We think that he became king when he came out of the tomb. Jesus took his rightful place as king when he was nailed to the cross on Friday. And this is a radically different way to see this. Think about this, this is so important. This is actually how it's presented. I've read this so many times and never seen this. The crucifixion was actually the coronation of Jesus as king, of Jesus the Christ, him and him crucified. It was the coronation of his king. Have y'all seen the crown? Anybody seen the crown? The, the British show like on Netflix, it's been the quarantine. It's okay to admit you've been binge watched something. Jill and I watched like all four seasons in like three months, two months. We were watching like every night. We were actually speaking to one another in British accents. <laughs> I would bring her tea and go, your majesty. She would be like, we would bow to each other. It just feels so cool. And so in there, what you see is you see this is real life, coronation. You see, there's, a, there's an episode where uh, Queen Elizabeth's dad was uh, his coronation and he goes to and he talks about the, the divine power that is granted to him to rule over England as the so and, and, their, and their territories as the sovereign. I mean, it's incredible. And then it speaks to uh, Queen Elizabeth's own coronation, right? Where it's the crowns and the scepter and the processionals and the carriages. It's unbelievable. And if you're not familiar with that, perhaps you've seen Frozen, right? <laughs> Queen Elsa is coronated. The window is open and so is that door. I didn't think they did that anymore, right? It's the first time in forever, right? You've seen this? Now you're stuck in your head. But Queen Elsa is coronated. It's the day in which she steps into her rightful place as the sovereign. 
She has a scepter and she has this little holy, sacred ball called an orb. And she sits there and she tries not to freeze everything. She's core, it's her coronation. And it's all the, the cross and the processional and the garb and the robes and the crown and all the stuff that goes in with it. There's a triumphal entry into the city. There's a procession uh, or an ascension to the throne. This is exactly how the crucifixion is portrayed for us. I've never seen it this way. I've read it a million times. There was a procession into the city. When Jesus comes in, we settle it on Palm Sunday. It's called the triumphal procession in your Bibles. Palm Sunday, because the people waved palms and put them at Jesus' feet as he came in on a donkey. And we all see this and we celebrate in our services and we really don't have a picture of what this is. Kings came in, I love Disney, so the pictures in my head are all Disney, but like Aladdin, remember Aladdin when he comes in? Boom, ba ba boom, ba boom. Prince Ali comes in and there's drums and there's men and there's elephants and he comes, and Jesus comes in on a donkey. And he's saying something. He's saying something. He's reversing something. The palm branches, they, we think, oh, this is, he was singing like, Hosanna, Hosanna. They were, they were laying the palm branches and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna means save us. Do you know what they thought the king of the Jews was coming in to do? He was coming in to establish his kingdom, to kick Rome in the teeth, to punish them. You know why they waved palm, palm branches were a symbol in Jewish culture 150 years before Jesus rode in on that donkey, Judas Maccabees had led a revolt that, that whooped the resistance and they waved palm branches as a banner of victory to go, we whooped our oppressors. What do you think they were asking when they laid those palm branches down again? This is the imagery that we need to have. There's a procession. There's actually a cabinet meeting. Jesus tells them, hey, I'm coming into my glory I'm coming into my glory in three days. You know, I'm, I'm going to be killed and I'm coming into Jerusalem. And this is going to happen. And his disciples are going, no, nah, you're not going to do this. This is a bad idea. And then James and John get, Judas by, uh, get Jesus aside and say, hey, Jesus, when you come into your glory, when you become king, can we like have the place on your right and left? Can we be like the secretary of state and the secretary of defense? That would be really cool. They're plotting this. You know what Jesus says to them? He says, you have no idea what you're asking. Do you know Why? Do you know who was on Jesus' right and left when he came into his glory? It was two thieves on the crosses beside him. This is, this, is, this is a coronation. It was a crown that they made for him, made of thorns. It was a scepter they would put in his hand. They would beat him over the head and go, hey, if you're king, if you're a prophet, guess which one of us smacked you just now? And they put the scepter in his hand. They mocked him by putting a purple robe in his processional, his ascension to the throne is where he carried his cross up the hill and he was nailed to it. And in that moment, there were several things that he said. Among them were a prayer that we are all familiar with. What did Jesus say? Father, forgive them for they're all boneheads. That's kind of what he said. You've not heard it like this, but have you thought about it? These are, these are, these are, they're, they're killing. There's a whole system that crushed Jesus. Father, forgive them for they know not what to do. Have you ever considered, was that a request? Was God, was Jesus asking God to do something that he was reluctant to do? I mean, do you, like, think about this. 
We're thinking God killed Jesus, and he's going, hey, forgive them. Basically what he's saying is, hey, God, forgive them. Don't, don't kill them for this. I know you want to, but I want you to forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Is that the picture we have in our head? Or was that prayer a revelation? You've got to consider this because otherwise what we think is that God is somehow up there and the only reason he hasn't put you on a cross is because Jesus did it for you and he's still mad and he's still angry and he's still, you know, it's this, it's this whole picture that we subtly have in our minds about repentance and all of these other things. Why so much violence? Like, why would this happen this way? I began to think about this. I've just been thinking about this over the few weeks. There's this, these two systems and it's not these two systems. These two are the same system collapsing or compressing or colliding with the gospel with this other way. And what it is, is it's this single moment in history when the creator of everything that is enters in to his creation. It's a moment when, and unlike any other holiness of Yahweh, touches, gets proximate with sinful, separated, estranged Creation, And when these two things collide together, when, when the brokenness of our world and the holiness of God collide together, it erupts in violence. Violence is always an overflow of frustration. This is what happens. Anybody ever gotten so mad at your kid you punched a wall? Just me? Oh, come on, I know you've done it. Because it's somehow when we were that frustrated and that angry, it's gotta go somewhere. And what happens is when you sort of think or this picture in your head is that the cross is what God did to Jesus in order to forgive you, what it ends up sounding like is that Jesus is saving you from God. Doesn't it? Have you ever thought about this? So you're like, dude, I just came for like some pastels and Easter bunnies. I was not expecting this on Easter. But I'm telling you, there are people that you know, some of it's your kids, that are done with God because they think he's mean. They're walking away from him because the way he's portrayed in so many places, including the church, as you cross me and you're in trouble. And we fail to realize that it was the cross that is a demonstration, the full revelation of all that God is on us. What did he say, his last words on the cross? It is finished. It was the establishment of his kingdom. And then he died. And then he died. The reason I believe, and I think this is how we have to say this, it's not what God was doing to Jesus in order to forgive you because it was God himself on the cross. We're going to run through this real quick. Colossians 1, 19 and 20, for God was well pleased to have all of his fullness to dwell in Jesus. It was God himself on the cross and that through him to reconcile himself to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood that is shed on the cross. What flowed down was this beautiful flow of grace that he invites us into in order to find and receive and embrace forgiveness. Why? Because the kingdom is only reconciled by forgiveness. It's the only possible way. In the cross, there was this compression of divine grace and human sin, and it erupted in violence. 
Violence is always an overflow of frustration. It wasn't what God did to Jesus in order to forgive your sins. It, the cross is what God himself endures in order to make forgiveness available to you. This is a much different way to think about this. On the cross, what happens, the violence was absorbed by God. Think about this. We have a problem with violence. We know this. We instinctively have a problem with it. We see it in our country. We see it in our city. We see it in our world. We know that and violence always begets violence, right? If a nation bombs another nation, what can you expect to happen in return? Bombs are going to go back. If someone fires bullets at one group, bullets are going to be fired back. If someone swings at one person, someone else, it's, it's, violence begets violence. And on the cross, the violence that typically leads to more violence and more harm became the very wounds that heal. God absorbed this. He took it into himself to bring healing to you and I so that we don't have to continue in either one of these systems. First Peter records it like this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. We might die to sins and live by his righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Now, the line that I drew here, what a lot of us think is these, these, these are, this is not right things you believe about God. This isn't right things you believe in God. This is whether or not, that's, that's religion. This is whether or not you have trusted what Jesus has done for you on the cross to bring you forgiveness. Are you forgiven? Have you received and trusted what he has done for you? And what I wanna ask you to do is where are you? Are you here? Some of you are outside. Some of you are like, no, I've never received his forgiveness. Are you here? Where are you? <clears throat> you need to assess it because it matters. Well, what do you do? See, like if you're thirsty, if you're thirsty and I said, oh, here's some water and you go, oh yeah, it's wet and it's in a cup and you believe a lot of right things about it, but you don't take it in, you are still going to be thirsty the same way. If you believe a lot of right things about God, but you have never taken him in, trusted him, you remain as unforgiven as you would thirsty. So my question is, have you trusted him? Some of you live like this. You, you, keep, you keep sabotaging and harming yourself because you believe that you have done too many things or too bad things, too, too many bad things in order to be forgiven. And what you are failing to do is to trust what has been done. I proclaim to know nothing except Jesus Christ, his rule and his reign and him crucified. And it is in that you get forgiveness. The belief system, the thing, and the other thing is maybe you're here and you just feel like, you know what? I've trusted Jesus, but man, I just feel like my life is going off the rails. The second question you need to ask is which direction are you facing? Because you know what this is like. Some of you have been, you're married and you're married on paper, but it is far from anything freeing or full or happy because you're facing the wrong direction. You're like this. Do you know what the command, the call, the invitation is for Jesus? Some of you are sitting there going, you ever listen to Jesus is kind of cold? You know what he says? Repent, turn, return, return. To be forgiven. Colossians 1 says like this, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and he has brought us into, into what? Read it on the screen. A kingdom. 
He's brought us into a kingdom of the son that he loves. He's brought us into this kingdom in whom we have redemption, to whom we have been bought in. How have we been redeemed or what is redemption? The forgiveness of our sins. This is everywhere in the Bible. It's everywhere in the Bible. We keep going, he invites us to return. Here's a better picture. A lot of you are going, you know what? My soul has been so ravaged by so many things. I don't know who I can trust. But the good news is you can trust Jesus. That's the good news. He bore, he bore our sins in his body on the cross so we might die to sins and live for his righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. For you were like sheep who were going astray. You just keep chasing all these other things and desires that you thought might actually satisfy you. And then he says, but now you have returned. You have returned. To who? To the one who's going against me? You better think twice. Who, who is he inviting you to return to? The one who is the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. The word literally means the guardian of your soul, the one who protects your soul. This is what the gospel is. The rally cry for the religious is we got a world to save. The rally cry for the irreligious is live and let live. The rally cry for those of us who walk in a kingdom is we have a God who saves and redeems. And that is incredibly good news. One final observation, and I honestly can't believe I've not seen this. I've read these passages. I've underlined them. I've written journal entries about them. I've preached messages on them, and I've always sort of overlooked this. When you begin to see this, the elevation of the cross is everywhere. Galatians 6, may I never boast except in the cross of Christ. Except in the cross of Christ. Because through it, the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. I've underlined that passage in my Bible. I've never thought about it this way because what happens when the world, what happens in a crucifixion? What happened on Good Friday in the crucifixion of Jesus? It was the transfer of power. It was one domain was defeated and another one took its place. So when Paul says, I want to boast on the, the cross because the dominion that the world has over me is no longer has sway. And now there's a new rule. You know what death is? Death is just separation. Not just. It is separation. It's harsh. It's full. It's separation. Eternal death is separation from God. It is to be removed from the way in which you have been created to live. When we live in sin now, we live separated from God. That's what it means to live in this idea of death. There's a death that we experience in, in, in this. And what our physical death does, what physical death does, it simply seals the fate forever. That's all it does. So think about this. When Jesus became king and then he died, what did he defeat? He defeated sin. He defeated death. He defeated the great. He did all of these things. He, defe he, he conquered sin, the rule that has, that holds your hearts captive and keeps us constantly searching and looking and longing was taken to the grave and its fate was sealed. And his resurrection is our invitation to walk in the newness has been provided so this no longer has sway, right? We keep reading, it says this in verse 15. 
Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Neither religion or irreligion mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. The only thing that counts is what Jesus has done for you in calling you and creating you or recreating you into this new creation. This is exactly what he does. I want for you to see this differently. The cross. The cross is the place where my sin has been forgiven. And Lord knows I have enormous list, perhaps like you do. But it's more than that. It's the place where I've been invited to live full and free under the rule and the reign of King Jesus. It's the place, the cross is the place where the pull of this world and all the things, all the things that it pulls me into lose its grip. Can you imagine for just a moment? Because some of you are chasing, you're chasing cars, you're chasing beauty, you're chasing, you know, uh, being known or being famous or being, you know, an influencer, you're chasing, um, you know, a better house, but you're just chasing all kinds of things. Imagine that the world no longer had the authority to drive your ambitions or your aims. Imagine if you were free from that. And imagine that the world no longer had the authority to be the aim of your ambitions or your desires. That's a freeing thing. This happens when we return to the one who is our good shepherd, the one who protects, the one who protects and guards the life that he's redeemed. This is what the gospel is, to repent, to return. This is incredibly good news. And so I want to just invite you to repent because this is what has been made available to you right here, right now. I know some of you are struggling so deeply because your chase and your pull is so deep. And for some of you, it's really, really dark. And right now you feel a little bit of hope, just a little bit. And you're going, but what about tomorrow or the next day or the next day? and it just paralyzes you. And what I'm telling you is that this is the God who says, I'm your shepherd and I'm your guardian and I'm your protector. And if you walk with me, repentance looks like walking with Jesus in this moment and the next moment and the next moment. And I will tell you, if you can trust him in this moment, you can trust him in the next. And y'all, there is no better news than that. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That's how I want for us to see him. We're gonna close um, in prayer and then we're gonna declare this song together. Father, thank you for the cross. What an unbelievable journey. <laughs> that that would be the throne that you ascended to to establish your reign as king, unlike anything we would have imagined and unlike anything we would have done. God, my prayer is that we would trust that what you have done for us is full and it's final and that your resurrection invites us to walk freely in what has been done. God, I pray that you would meet people here in their struggles, in their, their wrestling, 
And so, Father, I just ask for you to meet us in this moment, to challenge us, to poke us, to challenge, uh, to, to awaken us to what it is that you are longing for us. And I lift all this in the name of our son, your son, Jesus, who is our resurrected king. It's in his name I pray. Won't you stand as we close this song with a song together?